Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hi everyone, Peter Crosby here, Executive Director of the Digital Shelf Institute. 2022, the year the cookie dies. What's a brand leader to do? Rob and I grilled Nishant Desai, Senior Director of Tech and AdOps at Zaxis, and Stu Richards, Lead Programmatic Strategist at Catalyst, to detail the actions brands can take this year to thrive in a cookie-less world. So Nish and Stu, thank you so much for joining us on Unpacking the Digital Shelf. We, we really appreciate it. And because uh, I love cookies, I, I want to dive right into the death of the cookie, uh, Nish, with you. Uh, you know, you're the expert on all things data technology and ad operations. So just get our audience started with an update of, of you know, what I'm calling the death of the cookie. Uh, what, what does it mean and, and why should marketers care? Uh, thanks for having us. So uh, a cookie is uh, a foundational piece of web technology um, that at this point is about 25 years old. Um, and cookies were originally introduced to store um, little bits of data as a user was navigating across the web. So uh, the web doesn't inherently have a state or memory. And so these cookies allowed you to store data between sessions. So a good example is an e-commerce site. Um, if you added things to your cart um, without uh, cookies in the early days, as you navigated from page to page, either things would not persist in your cart, or if you uh, left the website, uh, your session would end and you would lose all the items in your cart. Um, so from a user experience standpoint, that wasn't great. And so cookies filled that gap to give the web a bit of memory. Um, over the years, the cookie has been used, uh, some people would say abused, <laughs> yes. um, in, in a way to enable a bunch of different things that it was never really, that they were never really intended to do. Um, and the main thing that uh, concerns advertising is that cookies were used to store uh, user identifiers. So anonymous alphanumeric strings um, that would tell a ad tech platform um, or a publisher uh, or an advertiser um, who that user was in an anonymized way. Um, this allowed uh, a number of different things to happen. Um, this includes measurement um, across a variety of sites. It also allows for personalization, um, frequency capping, a lot of different things along those lines. Um, so the depth of the third-party cookie um, is really significant because it's going to focus, force uh, ad tech uh, and advertisers in general to think about how they reach users in a different way. The, the cookies are stored on the user's computer or phone, right? They're, they're part of the browser's memory? Yep, absolutely. So if you go onto your uh, desktop or onto your phone, Somewhere in your local hard drive settings, there's a folder. Um, it's different for every browser. Uh, so there's a folder somewhere that stores little text files uh, that are actually the, these cookies. And so let's, let's define then for people the difference between the third-party cookies, which provide the, um, you know, the, when people will say they follow, they're following you around the web, like what, what does that mean and what is the third party cookie versus the first party cookies? Because the first party cookies are still okay and I think are essential for website operations, right? 
Yep. So a cookie in and of itself doesn't have a notion of whether it's first or third party. Um, it's more so how the cookie is being read. So um, when you're on a website, let's say uh, you're on salsify.com um, and you're viewing the page, um, any cookies or resources that get loaded on that page that are owned essentially by, by Salsify would be first party assets, right? That would be any cookies that were dropped by Salsify or being read there. Um, what you have in this case is also third parties, right? So a lot of uh, websites today use uh, third party tools to load content or to manage a shopping cart, things like that, right? So you might use a CDN, a content delivery network to store images. Um, those images are coming from a different uh, domain. So a good way to think about first party and third party is the first party is if you look in the URL bar on your browser, if it says site.com, that's the first party. If there are other things being loaded on that site that are coming from you know, site2.com, site3.com, those are third party assets. And that's where the difference between first and third party comes in. So third party cookies are cookies that are owned by um, someone other than the owner of the page you're actually on. And this is what allows you to do cross site tracking. And so, Nish, the, the the reason why it's going away is is, you know, it's it's a not a perfect system, but b there's just there's the concerns of privacy, et cetera, um, that you know what has happened in in 2020 that's you know, sort of catch us up on current state, like what's sure. what's what's making all of this sort of become urgent right now for brands. So. I would say this really started probably about five years ago um, when uh, in the EU, uh, the GDPR privacy regulations first started emerging. Um, before they were officially adopted, um, you know, pre-drafts were released and this, this raised a lot of awareness about um, what vendors were doing um, with data that was stored, right? So, uh, a ad tech vendor has very has a number of, of profiles across all of the users that they interact with. And so they started sitting on these massive troves of data. And the question became, what is this data really being used for? Um, we also in the US, we had the, the CCPA regulations that um, follow a similar but different approach to how that data is handled and managed. Um, and then also at the same time, we had a number of data breaches where large uh, holders of data uh, had uh, network breaches and that data ended up, uh, personal data, anonymized data, um, ended up on the open web and was utilized for um, unscrupulous uh, uh, means uh, by not great actors, right? So the notion of privacy for users became much more front of mind um, and as a result of that, the ad tech, the browser vendors really stepped in, right? So Apple in their Safari browser has been doing things to limit third-party cookies and third-party tracking for a number of years. Um, Firefox last year, um, I'm sorry, in 2019, um, actually released some, some tracking prevention in their uh, browser as well. Um, and then Google early last year, 2020, um, announced that they would be ending support for the third-party cookie in uh, 2022. So um, while privacy became the major driver of this, what really brought this to the attention of advertisers and the marketing landscape was that Google, which holds the largest market share of the browsers, 
um, effectively said they were going to end this mechanism. So that's why there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, uproar about this as to how this is going to uh, impact advertising moving forward. And Google's um, deadline is is when? When did they say it's getting turned off? So they, in the announcement in January, they said early 2022. Obviously, the pandemic has has probably thrown a, a bit of uh, a wrench in that. So um, they haven't shifted away from that early 2022 uh, date, but they haven't given an exact uh, uh, date when they will cut it off, or a version in which it, or a Chrome version in which it'll be discontinued. That was a great summary. There's a it's interesting about Google's doing it on the Chrome browser because that the cynical person would say that this is not going to harm Google's advertising business, but it kneecaps a lot of other competing advertising businesses. Rob, I'm shocked. Shocked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely not. That, that's one view to take. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily correct, right? So Google walks a very fine line between their, their ads group and their browser group. They are independent um, teams at Google, right? So it's not that that one is necessarily driving what the other is doing. Obviously, I assume there, there's pretty close collaboration there. Um, but I think, right, the real focus is, is, is that they're, you know, aside from what may or may not benefit fit them in the long run, I think the real uh, motivator here is, is privacy. So Stu, you have all of these client heads turning towards you <laughs> with this reality coming at them like a freight train. Yes. Uh, you know, as, as the leading expert on programmatic strategy at Catalyst, what are you telling them? Yeah, uh, I, I think really what it boils down to is that, you know, digital advertising in general is not about cookies, even though, you know, over time, attribution models that are reliant on cookies have become really the lowest hanging fruit and the easiest form of implementation for a measurement solution of digital ads. And so really we've become hyper-focused on this, uh, this crunching of numbers and race to the bottom in terms of cost pers across our digital media and measuring that on a, a last touch basis primarily. But really what digital advertising about is about is uh, understanding the data that you have available, analyzing it and getting insight from those analyses, uh, actioning those insights uh, with your investment strategy and testing and learning over time. And so really on our end, when we're having these types of conversations with clients, kind of boiled it down to about six actionable steps that uh, our, our clients can take so that they can be prepared for these changes that Nish ran through. Um, so firstly, uh, the, one of the biggest points, and this is something that seems obvious, but uh, you know, at least in my experience has been so under underutilized or underexplored in the past. And that's gathering information about what has worked and what hasn't worked. Uh, there's always been this strive on the client side to get actionable insights, but we have tended to look at things from a very siloed perspective. Um, and when I say we, I mean the industry, we've looked at channel specific insights, brought them together across a, you know, a, a large summary deck, but we often don't see that all of those points are tied together. 
So, you know, starting to build actionable insights really starts with measurement. Um, and measurement is definitely going to need to be redefined and adjusted in a more of an omni-channel model. And so what, you know, we're, we're expecting to see is because of the issues with attribution as it pertains to the changes of cookies, uh, we will likely see a return or a heavier shift of investment in analytics toward media mix modeling and um, multi-touch attribution that is not cookie based. Um, as I was saying before, you know, last touch attribution has, has really kind of hindered the, the growth of the omni-channel measurement strategy. Uh, but I, I definitely see that there is going to be more focus on traditional models and regression analyses and all the fun stuff that uh, is what data science or marketing science is for. Uh, I, I think you're also going to see uh, additional uh, understanding of what's working, what isn't through uh, traditional geo holdout tests, finding like markets, let's call it Los Angeles and San Francisco, activating one piece of media in Los Angeles, not activating it in San Francisco and understanding what the difference has, difference has been. So a lot more traditional methods. Uh, um, but you, um, let me just, uh, before you go on to the, to the next actionable steps, the, when you get back to the gather the intel, you, you made a great point about omni-channel and you started talking about mixed market studies. So, uh, those have been and are pretty pricey investments for a brand to make on a like do you see anything changing in industry that's going to sort of make that data potentially more readily available or or, or easier to to gather or, frankly less expensive to gather to be able to do some of this in terms of the the modeling insights or in terms of the, yeah. the attribution solutions in place I think I think I think both. I mean, I you know I'm not familiar enough with it to exactly know what. Sure. Is, other than that, I've heard that these measurement models can be can be quite onerous and expensive. Very very pricey indeed, and I mean it, it definitely depends. But I, I, in my personal opinion, expect to see more players coming into that space that are able to offer lower cost solutions where you know they're they're implementing regression models that are out of the box rather than something that is, uh, you know, specifically tailored for each client, which typical measurement vendors do. They, they go in, they look at the data across each of these channels and they uh, apply a rigorous model and test and learn over time. And then uh, the, the clients then utilize that for their investment strategies. I think what you might find is, uh, partners coming into the space that have a general understanding of the impact of TV and what, you know, is often misrepresented there versus what's happening in a digital direct buy versus a retargeting strategy, understanding the general weights and then being able to lay a model, layer a model on top of that. You might see some of these lower costs, more out of the box solutions come into play at a lower price point, but you may also see it coming through on the client side where the focus of the data analyst no longer becomes pure reporting pulling, but more becomes creating these models themselves. This is a, a one way to react to that is that this is bleak because you know that you're going, you're going from a digital data collection model where I mean, attribution isn't perfect with these third-party cookie 
attribution models, right? It's not perfect, but sure. but, it, but the, the causal lines are a lot clearer and the statistical evidence is a lot easier to get. And, and you know, the, the, the traditional marketing studies that you're talking about are really fraught with all kinds of problems. Um, I was just listening to a couple of very recent Freakonomics podcast episodes on does advertising work? Is advertising effective? And it's there's a lot of debate as to whether or not TV advertising is even worth doing at all. And on the one hand, you've got market mix models that show that there's this significant value. On the other hand, you've got academic studies that showed that it's not. And, and so the, the, there's an art to it as much as anything else. Whereas when you've got the cookies and you've got the data, uh, there's less of an art. It's a lot more just like pure data. You know, and the extreme example is if, you know, if you're just doing everything on a first party, um, on Amazon, for example, and you've got the advertisement all the way to purchase and you can see that, that trend line and there, there's no ambiguity in between. It's, you know, the data is clear as day. And so on this continuum, the market mix model studies and the regression models are on some, on an end of the continuum that is, is not inspiring. Is, am, I, am, I, am I overreacting here? Is that too negative? No, no, I don't think overreacting. I think, however, there has been this bias towards uh, solutions that aren't perfect in the digital space um, uh, and more, maybe less on the solution side of things um, because, you know, large brand marketers that have money to invest in very large scale and rigorous modeling uh you know, aside from them, many of the other advertisers that can't afford that investment out the gate, uh, they, they've been reliant on last click or last touch attribution. And, you know, I, I kind of expected to see that fade out about four years ago. Uh, it's still very much prevalent to this day. And so uh, in the out-of-the-box packages that something like a, a typical ad server will offer, uh, the, the attribution solutions set by default that have kind of become this industry standard are still very flawed in their own right. So, um, you know, going back to that TV comment as well, uh, I, I think with the cookie-based attribution solutions we've had in, in play, uh, because we've only been able to get that you know, strong one-to-one uh, -one data on some environments, we've just anticipated that the, you know, the other more traditional formats kind of just don't work because we're not seeing it in the, the same data set or the same way. And I, I still think that there's a, a severe lack of investment in brand versus performance marketing we've become so focused on performance marketing so fo focused on you know crunching every penny to make the most out of a add to basket that we've just lost sight of the fact that brands need to build over time to have long-term success rather than just short term um so uh, you know in general I, I think you can look at it two ways i don't think it's necessarily too bleak the the outlook for it i, I think it's uh, it's going to become a noisier space to look at when i you know when we're talking about measurement but i don't think all hope is lost <laughs> uh, i'm sure rob feels much better <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, i i wanted to because we we interrupted your flow a bit so so you had said uh you know in terms of your first six steps 
I think you'd, yeah. you gather this intel, you know, and just get, getting the, the, the best intel that you can across omnichannel. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll just quickly expand on that a little bit yeah. more. You know, we, you, you have a lot of the data from the previous marketing activities that you've done. You've got a lot of first party data as well, but there's a ton of data available online for free that you can utilize to understand what's working and what's not. I mean, some of this data could include things like census data, uh, you know, uh, platforms like Statista or other market research tools that allow you to subscribe to get data about your specific industry, um, as well as the likes of the more data science focused platforms such as Kaggle. Uh, you know, each of these platforms has really rich data sets that you can take in, you can analyze, you can match up against, you know, your, your performance that you're seeing on your end and get some really, really smart insights. Like we, we actually measured the uh, visitation rate of a find a retailer page for one of our brands against uh, the humidity in their primary uh, cities uh, day over day. And we found a strong correlation. So we started implementing that within our bidding to bid higher when we were seeing higher levels of humidity. Can't remember if it was humidity or temperature, but one of the two, but you, you see where I'm going there. So a lot of value there. Um, and, you know, that leads into the next point is, you know, geotargeting strategies, looking at the pockets of success in the uh, uh, dimensions that you have available in your marketing platforms. You know, maybe it's geo, maybe it's device, maybe it's time of day, understanding the performance there and taking those learnings into the future with you. Uh, it's kind of a, a new way of, it's sort of a, the the way of a b testing sort of in this new era yeah yep exactly and uh, i mean I, I don't think that advertisers models will change too drastically so to gain those learnings now and transfer them across i think will be a big step up um so you know my my recommendation there would be to start looking into this now the, the next thing is because we are not going to have the ability to third party uh, target using third party cookies, contextual strategies are a must to start building out. So understanding you know, the, the types of keyword data sets that you can utilize uh, with you know, real-time contextual bidding, um, understanding the different types of publishers or topics that are leading to performance uh, for any given advertiser, uh, as well as the publishers themselves, understanding the, the best contextual alignment there, and even utilizing some of your first-party data in conjunction with those publishers to test out how audiences work on a publisher by publisher basis and an extension yeah, on, of that. Sorry, on, go ahead. On, on that one, I know uh, Molly Schoenthal on the, the Digital Shelf Institute likes to talk about um, behavioral marketing, which it's basically you look at what somebody does as opposed to yes. somebody is. Yes. And you market to them based on what they do. And that the contextual angle there is exactly that. You're basically on whatever whatever digital property or where, where, however you're looking at the way that they behave, you're crafting the advertisement based on the behavior. So you don't need exactly. a user ID. You don't need past. You don't need the user's past purchase behavior. You're just, and you don't even need to know anything about them. It's instead of people like you are interested in things like this, it's people who do things like you are interested in. Right. Things. Yeah. Right. It's exactly. It's an interesting take on it. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, a lot of the focus previously has been finding a user that sits within an audience wherever they are. The shift is now going to be finding a user in that audience where they have the intent to be consuming content about that behavioral segment. I think the signal's stronger. However, I do think the scale will be smaller and, um, you know, leads to a lot of uh, economic conversations there and how that will play out in the market. But um, I, I think it's a, uh, you know, a, a very strong strategy to start testing and learning rather than you know, having to put it in place and learn come 2022. Uh, and, you know, final note, note on that one is to start looking at cleaning up your supply path if you're buying from publishers that uh, you, you know if you're buying from different sellers that uh, are, are reselling or you know finding the most optimal way to buy from the publishers that you are buying from is something to look at because you know if if you can provide value through the most efficient buying uh, and utilize that to your advantage, why not? And the last thing that I'll note is uh, first party data strategies. So, um, you know, across various business units within your organization, look at the, the data that they have available, be it in Google Analytics, be it in something like Mixpanel, be it in Salesforce, the amount of small chunks of insight that have led to really effective strategies in media buying that have come from these data sets uh, is remarkable and really one of the greatest signals to use for planning. Yeah, it feels like an area that's ripe for um, AI investment because you're looking for, so. instead of like the big demographics, like uh, women that are about to be mothers for the first time, which is, you know, you're painting with a pretty broad brush there. The right. types of behavioral signals that you're talking about tend to be a lot more nuanced and specific. Yeah. And yep. so, so using statistical models or um, AI to pull the signal out of the noise there feels like it would be a good application and almost necessary to do it, right? Definitely. And I mean, let, let's take an example there. Say you're a large retailer and you have loyalty data from your customers and there's stock of a, an item that you need to get you know, off the shelves, uh, maybe utilizing AI or ML to look through your loyalty data set, understanding who has previously, you know, kind of interacted with these deals after being a long-term purchaser and then remarketing to them through your first-party data publisher relationships. Yeah, um, today we had a conversation actually with the executive forum where where kind of this topic was was coming up in that um, one of the one of the guests on the on the conversation kind of said that DTC and this was in the context of CPG company was saying like D, D, direct to consumer is optional was what she said and came, back came kind of a torrent of disagreement which I thought which I was fascinating because it's a lot for a brand to take on right it, it's huge investments across it's yeah. a change in everything but everyone brought up the value of the data as the reason why they're doing it and the ability to, to test small and then take those learnings out across the omni-channel environment, which I thought was super interesting. And it goes to your point about the importance of first-party data. Right. So I was wondering, one, does that, does that resonate with you? Like, do you feel like 
DTC is will not be optional simply in 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 some ways because of this phenomenon that you're talking about here, which is you need to know your consumer better if you're gonna if you're gonna pull this off. Yeah, I, I it's a tough one. I, I definitely think that it, it's an extremely valuable asset. It's something that's been talked a ton about over recent years and something that is able to be you know, insights are able to be garnered from it and then taken in an omni-channel approach, which is really, you know, where we want to end up looking. The thing is that, uh, as you said, it's it's a large investment. It is uh, something that not all brands can do. Uh, but I, I think there, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can do it in more of a cost and in more of a cost effective manner. Um, but in, in general, I, I think really whatever data signals that you can get to better understand your consumers, the better. Uh, the the first party data is at the core of that. But if if maybe first party data is something that you don't have access to, you don't have the resources to build out there's potential of looking at second party data relationships. You know, if, if you're a movie studio, look at some of the theater level data set providers, or if you're an auto, other um, auto uh, data providers there. So the, there is the potential to kind of augment the minimal data that you have with someone else's data to be able to better inform what's actually happening on the back end and help that, uh, help use that data to inform your strategy. Um, but, you know, these things can be as basic uh, as looking at uh, loyalty programs, looking at content strategies, looking at the actual material that uh, people are resonating with. So let's say, for example, you're uh, in the B2B space and you have three different white papers with different topics that you are wanting users to download. If you're looking at a pure um, site visitation to download ratio across each of those three white papers, you're probably gonna get a general sense between topic one, two, and three, what's resonating more based off that simple uh, metric. So I, I think there's a lot of wide learnings that can be generated outside of having an email address, first name, last name off of the consumer, but it is going to help significantly in the future to have that. Yeah, it seems like there's a real opportunity in the post-purchase um, stage to build those relationships, uh, even, you know, even wherever the customer comes from. If, right. you, if you're creating programs that draw them to you post-purchase, um, that you can get the data that without actually needing to transact commerce directly with your consumer. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that may be promotions, it may be warranties, it may be uh, a ton of different things that are native to either the purchase or the product itself that you can start collecting that data, which is pretty low hanging fruit. So when you think about this challenge, you know, uh, of, of measurement, you know, we talked a little bit about it before, but if, uh, you know, you're at the bar, <laughs> this is my standard thing. There's always a drink involved. <laughs> Usually you're at a bar with a client and they really are struggling with this measurement. Well, assuming you could be in a bar, I don't know, you know, do one of those zoom 
cocktail things. Someday, right? someday in the someday future, after the cookies are dead and you're in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> bar. <laughs> in that post-apocalyptic world, if um, if a brand executive is begging you for advice on on how to up their measurement game, uh, where where might you send them? It's a great question. Um, I, I think the first and foremost thing is to get them to understand their data. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think I said this before, but so many people that I've spoken with historically had no idea that they have the access to this set of data or that set of data in another platform uh, that can be really, really valuable in understanding what consumers' behaviors are, uh, which can then be utilized in your media investment and planning strategy. So that, that is by far, first and foremost, just getting the pieces together. Then it's kind of linking the pieces, seeing how they interrelate, whether one data set is based off timestamp, one is based off of, you know, the, the actual first party name, email address, kind of getting that all together and merging it in a way that's applicable. And then really, I mean, it, it, it's a little more complex, but you, you can do things as simple as, uh, you know, forms of correlation analysis, or maybe that, that's a bit too difficult, but um, if, if there are data people on your team uh, or on, on your side that have some basic knowledge of how to analyze data uh, and, and look at a specific conversion point and understand uh, the, the relationship between different variables as it pertains to driving that conversion point, you can get some really good high level insight um, as to, you know, not just how a channel is working, but how channels are working together to drive success. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it really all starts with your data, understanding it. And typically, the more you understand what you have available to you, the more uh, strategic that you can get with your approach to analyzing it. So you're not just looking, you know, blindly at a spreadsheet with 30 tabs on it, um, but you're, you're actually understanding how the data gets tied together and what could be driving success and what should be analyzed. Uh, so yeah, it's not, it's a little tedious, but if you're into that thing, like I am, uh, it, it's a fun <laughs> exercise. I did just see while, while you were talking about 30 tabs on a spreadsheet, I did see Nish start to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's familiar with that, uh, that experience. Yeah, not just in the spreadsheet, in my browser as well, notorious for, for tab overload. <laughs> yes, I've, I've killed my computer more than once with, uh, with my Chrome tabs. So let's, let's wrap this up, gentlemen. This has been uh, a really helpful survey of, of what's going on. Um, as they prepare for the, uh, the death, the final crumble of the cookie uh, in 2022, what, what's your sort of parting, parting wish for them that they get on top of uh, in the 12 months to come? Anish, do, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Um, so Safari is a really good place to start, right? So when we talk about third-party cookies, um, Safari is a really good indicator of where the landscape is going to be, um, you know, 12 to 18 months from now, right? Safari already 
blocks most third-party cookies in that context. So it's a really good test bed to see uh, what the overall impact on your media will be uh, when third-party cookies no longer exist as a whole. So you have a, a good amount of time right now to, to test and learn uh, and figure out what the actual impact is going to be. Um, it's also a really good time to look at um, what strategies you were using and were they really uh, effective or driving a lift that you were hoping for, right? Were you buying audience as a proxy for content, right? Were you, um, was the audience signals that you were previously using, were you, were you doing that because you were looking to drive down media costs and, and buy more in long tail and you can get similar audiences by working with, uh, within pub with publishers in certain verticals? So look at what you can do in terms of um, alternatives to those, those audience-based methods. There's a ton out there, and a lot of times they're cheaper or more effective than an audience-based buy. That is great. Uh, Stu, you're up. Uh, cool. Uh, I mean, it's definitely lots, lots to say about the issue, but um, I, I think really, you know, don't panic. This, again, digital media is not about just cookies. Uh, I, I think we need to be more strategic in our planning than ever. Uh, I, th I think that the system around last touch attribution that we've relied on, uh, it, with, with getting away from cookies, it's going to be a refreshing change to uh, take a step back and look at things that, you know, more, more of a, uh, uh, an appropriate lens. Um, I, I think that really now is a time to look at what you're doing from a publisher relationship standpoint and not just looking at what works in terms of performance as it currently stands, but look at the content that you're supporting, look at the uh, publishers, the journalists that you're supporting and, and kind of really create brand affinity through your alignment with content. And, you know, the last point on that is keep investing in your brand. Uh, so much focus has been on performance marketing, uh, getting the most out of every dollar from the attribution solutions in place that, you know, it's, uh, it, it's great to kind of get your foot in the door maybe as a startup. If you're not investing in your brand, you're not setting up setting yourself up for long-term success. So I, I think just keep that top of mind. And I think with, with everything going on, that will become more top of mind organically. So, so to sum up, don't panic. And, and that there, there are concrete steps forward that, that you can take on, uh, on, on, these, on these issues as we head through 2021. Gentlemen, thank you so much for bringing the, the combined brain power of Catalyst and access to the, to the four here. We really appreciate you uh, spending time with us and, and, uh, and filling us in. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for the conversation. Thanks again to Nish and Stu for joining us. Our new watchword for 2021, don't panic. And as always, thanks for being part of our community.